Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I get too much further, you know I like to do a little bit of a current events update, hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. This was a crazy week. There was a lot, so I will do a bunch of quick hits. A judgment was made in the New York civil fraud case against Donald Trump. He has been fined $354.8 million plus $100 million in interest payments. His sons, Eric and Donald Jr., were each hit with $4 million fines, and all three have been barred from helming New York companies or borrowing money from New York banks for at least three years. Ukraine's military announced it has retreated from the city of Avdivka, ceding it to Russia after months of ferocious fighting. This is the first notable Ukrainian city to fall in nearly a year. It comes amidst congressional deadlock on additional financial aid for Ukraine. There is the reality that if we fail to fund them, they will face catastrophic ammunition shortages, as reported by ABC News. On Wednesday, there was a mass shooting in Kansas City at the parade celebrating the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory over the San Francisco 49ers. The shooting left one person dead and 22 injured, half of whom are children under the age of 16. Two juvenile suspects have been charged with gun-relating crimes and resisting arrest. There will most definitely be additional charges as the investigation continues. 44-year-old Lisa Lopez Galvan, a DJ at a local radio station, was killed in the shooting. She leaves behind a husband and two young children. In Fulton County, Georgia, a judge is hearing arguments over the motion to disqualify D.A. Fonnie Willis, who is the lead prosecutor in Donald Trump's election interference case. The accusations are that she benefited financially from a romantic relationship with prosecutor Nathan Wade, whom she hired to work on the case. Both Willis and Wade have admitted to the relationship claiming it started after he was already working as a special prosecutor and that she never received any financial benefit from the relationship. My guess is that Willis will not be disqualified from prosecuting the Trump case, although her having a relationship with Wade may have been in poor taste or leads to all kinds of salacious headlines. It doesn't appear that there was any financial gain or a conflict of interest regarding the election interference case. And Alexei Navalny, a vocal critic and would-be political opponent of Vladimir Putin, that is, if Putin actually allowed for elections to take place in his country, was reported to have died in prison on Friday. Russian prison authorities are reporting that 47-year-old Navalny fell ill after taking a walk and losing consciousness. The medical staff was unable to revive him, and he was pronounced dead. When asked about the death of Putin's chief political rival, President Joe Biden was quoted as saying, We don't know exactly what happened, but there is no doubt that the death of Navalny was the result of something that Putin and his friends did. Okay, now it's time for a movie review. I follow the same basic template every week. So if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar-worthy? And should you watch it? Or did I finally stumble across one that really kind of sucks? 
As a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and you might not always agree with me. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Tom Jones. It was released June 26, 1963. It's directed by Tony Richardson. It stars Albert Finney, Susanna York, Hugh Griffith, and George Devine. It was nominated for a total of 10 Oscars, and it won four of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score. If you want to watch it, you're going to have to pay $3.99 to stream it on Amazon Prime Video. So what is it about? As the movie begins, we see that Squire Allworthy, played by George Devine, has just returned to his home in the country after several months in London. He lives in a large, spacious home, surrounded by servants, but no wife or children. His unmarried sister is the lady of the house. As Mr. Allworthy enters his bedroom, he finds a newborn baby lying on his bed. He and his sister are unsure of where the baby came from, and upon questioning one of the maids, a woman named Jenny Jones, she confesses to have left the baby in his bed. Mr. Allworthy accuses Jenny of having a tawdry affair with his barber, Mr. Partridge, and forces them both from his home. He does, however, decide to keep the baby to raise as his own son. He names him Tom Jones. Fast forward about 20 years, and we see Tom Jones as a young man. He is played by Albert Finney. Yes, that Albert Finney. And if you're like me when you heard that name, your brain went immediately to the older fella who played Julia Roberts' boss in Aaron Brockovich. But this is a young Albert Finney. He was 26 when this movie was made. So he's tall, thin, has a beautiful smile, and a full head of gorgeous hair that makes you feel like he should have been a member of the 80s pop group Duran Duran. The best way to describe Tom is that he's a rich kid, not too bright, and is always looking to mess about with the ladies. We witness one of his sexual encounters about five minutes in when he rolls around in the bushes with a young woman named Molly. Her father is employed by Mr. Allworthy, so although Tom has a good time with her, she's seen as a low-ranking woman of questionable character, even lower than a bastard son like Tom. The Allworthys live next door to the Western family. Squire Western is played by Hugh Griffith. He is also unmarried, shares a home with his single sister, and has a lovely daughter named Sophie. She is Tom's age, and she's played by Susanna York. Squire Weston is batshit crazy. He's a drunk and lecherous scoundrel. He hates everyone and has a tremendous chip on his shoulder. Tom and Sophie have a fondness for each other, and it seems like they'll be together. But we'll watch for the next two hours as everything imaginable tries to keep them apart. One of the roadblocks is Tom's cousin, Mr. Bliffle. 
This is the son of Mr. Allworthy's sister, Bridget, who married shortly after Tom was found in the home. Mr. Bliffle is different from Tom in every way. He's polite, pious, well-educated, and respectful. But he's also dull as shit, and no woman wants to touch him with a 10-foot pole. It seems Bliffle's main grudge against Tom is that a bastard has been given the same privileges that he, a well-born man of sophistication, has been given. Yet Tom seems hell-bent on pissing it all away. Bliffle goes out of his way to try to come between Tom and Sophie. But Sophie is wise to what he's doing, and she's not falling for his act. A few weeks go by, and Tom finds out that Molly is pregnant. Because of her low birth and unmarried status, she's judged as a slut and cast out. Other women in the village catch her coming out of church one day and gang up on her, beating and humiliating her until Tom comes to her rescue. There's plenty of speculation as to who the father is, but Molly refuses to tell her father or Mr. Allworthy the man's identity. Mr. Western has concluded that Tom is the father, and Sophie is starting to worry it might be true. Molly may have led people to believe the baby was Tom's, and so he's relieved to discover it's not. But there's already been harm done to both of their reputations. One day, as they are out on a hunt with a large group of people, Sophie's horse gets spooked and starts running away, and she's unable to get it under control. Tom races after her and manages to stop her horse to rescue Sophie. Tom breaks his arm during the heroic act, and Sophie realizes that she's fallen in love with him. She's even willing to forgive his scandalous behavior with Molly. The two of them have a few obligatory falling-in-love scenes, you know the ones. Here they are walking through the garden, and here they are dancing in the meadow, and here they are running around in the rain, and here they are riding horses through the countryside, and oh, don't forget, here they are on a small boat floating down the river. 100% in love with each other. But there's one major problem. It's that Tom can't stay loyal to Sophie because it seems impossible for this guy to keep it in his frickin' pants. Tragedy strikes when Mr. Allworthy and his sister Bridget are in a terrible horse buggy accident. Bridget dies from her injuries, and Allworthy is left bedridden and not expected to survive. At his mother's funeral, Bliffle is approached by the family lawyer, who says he has a letter that Bridget left behind for the lawyer to personally give it to Mr. Allworthy upon her death. Bliffle takes the letter, but never gives it to Allworthy, even after the man recovers from his terrible injuries. Mr. Western's sister convinces him that Sophie is in love, but she mistakenly believes it's with Bliffle and they plot to arrange a match between the two of them. Western makes a betrothal agreement with Allworthy, while the sister very excitedly breaks the news to Sophie. But she's horrified. She thinks Bliffle is a sniveling little weasel. It's Tom she's in love with. Her aunt is horrified to hear of Sophie's true affections, and is basically like, over my dead body will you ever marry a lowborn bastard. Sophie and Tom confess their love for each other, but now Tom is on the wrong side of Mr. Western for thinking he can have his daughter without permission. Mr. Western locks Sophie in her room and refuses to let her see Tom. Allworthy is convinced by Bliffle and the two gentlemen who serve as his tutors that Tom Jones is a drunk and a lecher 
and is giving the family a bad name. Allworthy makes the difficult decision to kick Tom out of the house. He gives him a substantial amount of cash and sends him off to seek a life of his own in London. But things never go smoothly for Tom. It doesn't take long for him to get in drunken brawls, lose his money, and end up in bed with another woman who is not Sophie. Back at home, Sophie manages to escape her father's captivity and run away in the middle of the night. She's heading to London in search of Tom. Even though he's a womanizing, cheating cad, the heart wants what the heart wants. And of course, Tom and Sophie each run into some interesting characters on their separate treks into London. Tom comes across a beautiful older woman named Mrs. Waters. He rescues her from being assaulted and then escorts her to the next town. She's very voluptuous, and her clothes are nearly torn off, so you can imagine how hard it is for Tom to contain himself on the long journey. Sophie happens to run into her cousin, Harriet Fitzpatrick, on the road to London. Harriet has just left her jealous, volatile husband and is also heading to London. She offers Sophie a place to stay, and the two women continue their journey together. Tom and Mrs. Waters check into a nearby inn. And no surprise, they end up in bed together. Unfortunately for Tom, there are a few other people who are about to arrive at the inn, making this a very sticky situation. First, there is an angry mystery man, insisting his wife is here with another man. He forces the innkeeper to take him from room to room in search of his wife. As they head upstairs, there is another arrival at the front door. It's the stagecoach carrying Sophie and Mrs. Fitzpatrick. The man upstairs bursts into Tom's room, thinking he's caught him with his wife. He attacks Tom in a fit of rage. But this man isn't Mr. Waters, and Tom isn't shagging his wife. The man is Mr. Fitzpatrick, and another guest pulls him off of Tom long enough to help him realize the woman in his bed isn't Mrs. Fitzpatrick. In fact, Mrs. Fitzpatrick is downstairs and can recognize the sound of her husband's screaming voice. She and Sophie inquire as to what the heck is happening upstairs and are told that the guest Tom Jones has been caught in bed with the guest Mrs. Waters. And Sophie's like, did you say Tom Jones? And then faints from the betrayal. Once again, she's forced to face the harsh reality that he's a fucking cheater. Mrs. Fitzpatrick manages to wake Sophie up and get her out of the inn before the angry husband comes downstairs to discover them. As they are on their way out, they manage to just barely miss being discovered by Sophie's father, who has now also arrived by stagecoach in search of his daughter. It's a very popular place, this little inn. In all of the chaos of the moment, Sophie accidentally drops her fur muff and pocketbook, which Tom recovers and realizes that Sophie had been there. Back on the road, Tom becomes the victim of an attempted robbery. He manages to disarm the man, only to realize it's Mr. Partridge. Remember 20 years ago? He was Mr. Allworthy's barber, the man accused of impregnating Jenny Jones with a bastard baby. He was forced out of town in shame and has been down on his luck ever since. And Tom is like, hey, wait a minute, you're my dad. Now, Mr. Partridge tells him the truth. He isn't Tom's father, but he was accused and cast out anyway. He had no way to prove his innocence, and no one seemed to know who Tom's real father was. Tom wants to make up for all the suffering Mr. Partridge has endured on his account, 
so he accepts the man's offer to be his servant. A friendship with Partridge will come in handy, as he knows some people in London who will offer Tom free lodging. Mrs. Miller welcomes Tom into her home. Turns out she used to be a cook in Mr. Allworthy's home and wants to help ensure the young man is looked after. Tom is desperate to find Sophie, so he goes to the home of Mrs. Fitzpatrick. She advises her staff to refuse his entry and insists that Sophie isn't staying there. Sophie has been taken in by Lady Belliston, who pretends to be a great advocate for Sophie's happiness, but in truth, she also wants to sleep with Tom. And since he seems to find it impossible to keep his dick in his pants, that's exactly what's going to happen. So once again, Tom is so desperate to be with Sophie that he jumps in bed with someone else. Lady Belliston introduces Sophie to a complete nincompoop named Lord Fellamar, and he begins courting her. Sophie's not the slightest bit interested, but he is dogged in his pursuit and Lady Belliston feels she can influence Sophie into a relationship with him or find a way to force it if they must. All of this, of course, because Lady Belliston wants Tom for herself. Around this time, Mr. Allworthy shows up in London. He arrives at the home of his dear previous servant, Mrs. Miller, and she assumes he's there looking for Tom. Perhaps he's forgiven the lad and come to bring him home. But Allworthy had no idea Tom was staying with Mrs. Miller, In fact, he's only there because he's come to introduce his well-born nephew, Mr. Bliffle, to the lovely society folks in the city. Tom is still trying to get back into Sophie's good graces, so he once again goes to see Mrs. Fitzpatrick, who this time lets him in for a chat. But guess who shows up just in time to see him leaving her home? Her crazy, jealous husband, who mistakenly attacked Tom at the inn in Upton. This time he challenges Tom to a duel, and both men pull out their swords. Tom ends up winning the duel, but some witnesses claim it wasn't a duel at all, that Tom stabbed Mr. Fitzpatrick while trying to rob him. Tom is taken off to jail, and in an alarmingly speedy judicial process, Tom is scheduled to be hanged in Town Square the next day. Bliffle gets the news and is all too happy to tell his uncle that Tom has been arrested for physically attacking and stabbing Fitzpatrick. Mr. Partridge has been desperately trying to find anyone that can help prove Tom is innocent, and the last 10 minutes of the movie is a complete whirlwind. It turns out that Mrs. Waters, the woman Tom slept with at the inn in Upton, is actually Jenny Jones, the woman believed to be Tom's mother. Don't worry, she's not, but she did put the baby in the bed at the request of Bridget, Mr. Allworthy's sister, who was really the baby's mother. When Bridget died, she left a letter with her lawyer confessing the entire saga to her brother, but Mr. Bliffle intercepted the letter and never gave it to his uncle. Bliffle has known the entire time that Tom was his biological brother and a legal heir to the Allworthy estate but he stayed quiet and he watched Tom be cast out to live the life of a poor bastard. Allworthy finds out about the letter and realizes that Tom is indeed his real family, and he must do everything to keep him from hanging. By strange coincidence, Mr. Western, Sophie's father, is in London as well. And when Allworthy tells him that Tom is his legitimate heir, Western decides to help rescue Tom from the hangman's noose. 
they all race to town square and save Tom in the nick of time. Allworthy tells Tom he's a legitimate heir. And Western gives his blessing for Tom to marry Sophie, who, believe it or not, still welcomes him with open arms. And they live happily ever after. Question one. Does Tom Jones stand the test of time? I have to say no, and it's for a couple of reasons. First is that this movie really struggles to decide what kind of movie it wants to be. It's billed as an uproarious comedy, but it mixes several different types of comedy, so it feels very messy. Imagine if you can, if you were to mix together the following things. So start with like a silent film, like the old Charlie Chaplin movies where the words are on the screen and the actors are like pantomiming in silence. Then you mix in sort of a, a Benny Hill style where you have the music do, 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 while the film is on fast forward. So like a chase scene or a fight scene is in super fast motion while do, 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 And then you mix in a little bit of like Mr. Bean where it's just hapless, dumb slapstick. And there are parts of it, pretty much every scene that Mr. Western is in, that will remind you, if you can really stretch your memory, to the Mel Brooks movie, History of the World Part One, the section where he's King Louis Fourteenth, and he's like, it's good to be the king. And he's grabbing women's breasts and smacking their ass or pushing them down in the bushes to have his way with them. This is Mr. Western in a nutshell. He's all about drunken debauchery. And it's just not funny. Even the director said in interviews that he didn't feel like this film came together the way he wanted it to and was surprised at all the acclaim it had received. There are also a number of things that are problematic about the movie, at least in the sense of what today's audience would find unappealing. This movie was made in 1963, but it's based on a book from the late 1700s. So you know going into it that there's going to be some really off-putting things. For starters, the treatment of animals is not good in many cases. There's a hunting scene that borders on absolute cruelty, and it really doesn't even need to be in the movie. It serves no purpose. But there are other moments of mistreatment that I know they intended to be funny, but I guess I just don't get it. And by the way, it's always Mr. Western, who is drunk almost the entire movie. So we're supposed to laugh when he throws a mug of beer in his dog's face or kicks a pig that happened to walk across his path. I can't figure out why a person sees, you know, just a chicken sitting quietly on a bale of hay and feels compelled to slap the chicken upside the head as they're walking by. And remember, this movie is an uproarious comedy. And I'm wondering, what part of this makes people laugh? And of course, you expect a movie set in this time period would show some flagrant mistreatment of women. And it might surprise you that that's not really the case. Tom is always respectful, everything is consensual, the women are willing partners, and oftentimes the aggressors. Until we get near the end, when Lady Belliston is conspiring to get Sophie married off to Lord Felimar. He knows Sophie is not interested and is spurning all of his advances. He seeks advice from Lady Belliston, asking how he can gain Sophie's affection. And she tells him he could just be more forceful. She actually says, does the word rape bother you? And I'm thinking, what the fuck did she just say? And yes, she basically tells him if he wants her, he should just rape her. That's how you do it. 
And he actually takes that advice and he physically attacks Sophie. He has her on the ground trying to tear off her clothes when her father comes in and rescues her. And again, this is supposed to be an uproarious comedy. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? I will honestly say I do not think so. The other movies nominated that year were America, America, Cleopatra, How the West Was Won, and Lilies of the Field. I would have voted for How the West Was Won or Lilies of the Field or even HUD, which didn't get a nomination. I'm not sure how Tom Jones pulled this off, but it wouldn't have been my choice for Best Picture. The costumes and the music are both worthy of nominations. I even think the script was well-written, but I just don't see this as being Best Picture. It's noted as Albert Finney's big breakout role, and I won't deny he's very charming in this, but the total package just doesn't do it for me. Question three, should you watch it? I really don't think I'd recommend this one. There are a lot of good bits and pieces, but I don't feel like it's pulled together well. I think there were three or four times I may have chuckled a little bit, but I didn't find it all that funny. There's a lot of miscellaneous stuff that doesn't need to be in the movie that could have been cut, but then they crammed all this really great stuff into the last 15 minutes like they were trying to wrap up the loose ends. The the pacing is just way off. And I know people will think that I just don't appreciate body British humor. And that's not it at all. I'm a big fan of British humor when it's actually funny. This one tries too hard to be just too many things all at once. And I just felt like it comes across as messy. I think there are plenty other movies you would enjoy more. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 65 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.